So we're continuing on with the, the Armor of God series. We're almost done with it. We'll be finishing it up next week. It, of course, comes from this verse in Ephesians, which we've been working through bit by bit. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place. That'll stop whenever the kids stop moving. Uh, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then that was last week. This week we were on take up the helmet of salvation. It's interesting to me because Paul just doesn't name the armor. He names what it symbolizes and where we tie it back into. And it's interesting to me that the helmet is salvation. I would have thought salvation would be the shield or maybe the breastplate. Um, you know, protecting your heart, breastplate makes sense. But, but what Paul's saying is, no, the helmet is salvation. And that is telling me that the helmet, of course, is to protect your head. And in the spiritual war, that'd be to protect your mind. So he's saying salvation protects your mind. And I thought that was interesting. You know, I was kind of looking at that and thinking, where am I going with this, Lord? Because I'm not exactly sure. That's not how I typically think of salvation. I always look at salvation as, you know, saving us for the, for the future, for heaven. There's actually three different, for those of you who like getting into this stuff, there's actually three different uh, salvations based on tense because salvation is based on the Greek word to, you know, to save and it's, it has the same tenses that the verb does. Uh, there is this past, which we would call justification. In other words, salvation from your sins, uh, that were in the past. There's also a present version of that, which we call sanctification, which is uh, sins presently committed. You're still saved from those as well. Jesus' salvation's for that. And then there's the one we usually think of salvation for, which is the future. Uh, the, the future's glorification. Oh, I see. It's a typo. Glorification, which is uh, salvation for heaven. So that's, that's the three parts of it. And I believe what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, the salvation for the helmet, I think we're talking about the daily salvation. The salvation protects us against the fight, which we're taking, you know, we're, we're taking the fight towards the devil. The devil's coming at us. We're in a spiritual warfare, whether you want to be or not, you're on a battlefield. And so you need your helmet. Now, interestingly, the first three parts of the, of the armor are actually things that you would wear all the time as a soldier. The belt you put on, you put on the breastplate all the time, you put on the shoes all the time. But the next three, the, the shield, which we talked about last week, the helmet this week, and the sword next week, were all things you pick up right before you fight. In other words, the soldiers would relax, they take off their helmet, they put it near them, their sword would be there and their shield would be there. But when the enemy actually attacks, you have to grab them quickly, put them on and get ready. And so there is something about that, I think, that follows through with this, that follows through with the faith, that sometimes you have to pick up your faith and hide, you know, hide behind it and use it. Uh, and also the salvation of the helmet. I think sometimes you're being attacked before you know it and you better get your helmet on. And that's what we want to talk about today. What does that mean? Well, Paul uses this, this idea of fighting a spiritual battle throughout. This is 2 Corinthians. He says this, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are not fleshly, not normal, not human, but they're mighty in God and they have a purpose for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. This is where we're getting into the helmet now, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. But there's very, something very, very specific about the helmet of salvation. It's something that you had nothing to do with. I think that's really kind of key on this because when we start talking about the mind, there's a lot of books out there, both, both you know, books, secular books and even Christian books about how you need to guard your mind and there's techniques and things. And I actually think most of it's pop psychology masquerading as Christianity. But that's clearly not what Paul's talking about here. 
He's not talking about some kind of a formula. You have to go through some mental steps in order to guard your mind. No, since he called it the helmet of salvation, it's a gift because salvation's a gift. See, salvation is a gift that was wrapped up in white linen and presented to you by the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. You had nothing to do with it. You didn't get saved because of works. There's nothing you can do, in fact, to get salvation. Salvation was a gift. I think there's some, for me, there's some comfort there. Because if this is like, because your mind's a pretty important part that the devil attacks, and if it's up to me to know how to stop that, I'm in trouble because I make mistakes all the time. I like the idea that I can put on a helmet that's Jesus, and there's no mistakes to be made there as long as I have it on. It will protect me from the devil and from the evil attacks that come to me from the devil. And Paul's talking about this an awful lot. In fact, not just Paul, but the entire Gospels and the New Testament talk about this. There's this idea that once you're saved, God starts renewing your mind. He just starts doing it. It's not work you do. It's he starts doing it because he's putting into you the mind of Christ. And Paul actually references that several times as well as as others. So what, what he's saying is your salvation gives you the mind of Christ, which is a process where the Holy Spirit starts rebuilding your mind to, to be the, like the mind of Christ. So the mind of Christ is actually what's going to save you from the devil's attacks. So let me, let me look at a couple of these scriptures. So Paul says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's coming to you through the Holy Spirit. He's renewing your mind constantly that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is interesting because what he's saying is the mind of Christ is being, your mind's being renewed with the mind of Christ. And as that happens, you're going to be tested. No one likes being tested. One of the worst things a Christian goes through. But as that happens, you get sharper and clearer. And over, overall, you'll start knowing, you'll be able to discern the will of God. Probably the number one question I get asked or it's usually not asked as a question. It's usually said as an exasperated sigh. A Christian will say, you know, if I just knew what God wanted me to do here, I would do it. I just really wish I knew what God wanted here. And a lot of, you know, a lot of things, a lot of talks are, are given about knowing the will of God. And it's like Christians always want to know, well, what's the will of God? Well, Paul's saying if your mind is renewed, it will be able to discern the will of God, and you'll know what's good and what's not. And so he's saying there comes a point where you're not going to sit around and pray and put out fleeces or anything else. The mind gets renewed to the point where you'll just know what God wants you to do because you have a mind that's geared towards heaven instead of towards earth. And this is the protection that the devil does not ever want to see you have. And so in Colossians, he puts it this way. Look, if you were raised with Christ, then now you need to seek those things which are above where Christ is. For he's sitting on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above not the things of earth. And that's all part of this whole thing where we're going to kind of be renewing the mind. We're going to put on the helmet, which is a salvation, and, that, and, and over time, the Holy Spirit is going to renew our mind. We need to look to Jesus for this. We always have to look to Jesus for that. Salvation, though, saves you, when we know this, from condemnation. You know, we, we know that. That's part of what salvation does. Salvation saves you from condemnation. Why that's important is when you put the helmet on, if you've seen these, these Roman helmets, they put the helmet on, and they actually have the ear hole cut out. And they have a separate piece that kind of goes over to protect the ear, but it kind of flaps. The reason is you have to be able to hear your commander's orders. When you have the helmet, you have to still be able to hear your commander when he tells you. And if you ever watched the Roman army fight, they fought as a unit. 
then the, and the, the person who was in charge of the unit would call out the formation and they would flow into the formation. That's how they fought. You had to be able to hear that. What you don't want to hear is what the enemy's saying. What you want to hear is what your commander's saying. And I believe that's really important because as we start handing our, you know, letting our bodies and our, our minds and our spirits be reformed in, in Christ, what's going to happen is we're going to start getting keyed into the voice of God. You know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. We're supposed to know what God sounds like, and we're supposed to know what the enemy sounds like. And once you get to that discernment, a lot of, this goes, a lot of the problem goes away. When you understand that the devil speaks through condemnation and Jesus does not, you'll start understanding the difference between what the devil's trying to do to you and what Jesus is trying to lead you to. Because the devil will always speak in condemnation. Now, we know that we're not condemned. We see this in Romans 8, this very famous verse, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned. I always read that verse as though he's saying that you know, when we stand before God at the judgment day, we won't be condemned. You know, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I always thought this was a verse for the future. But I missed the now. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's not just the future. It's right now. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Heavenly Father, do not condemn you. And we see this on earth when Jesus, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery. What does he say? Where are your accusers? They all left. Neither do I condemn you. Right? He's not here to condemn. He came to save, right? But he is here to convict. And there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. And once we understand this, we'll understand how the Holy Spirit is using conviction to renew us and make us better. And the devil wants to use condemnation to keep us down. And we need to know the difference between these two things. We have to understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. See, conviction is you can be better. Condemnation is it's hopeless. There's no way out. Uh, I've told this story before, I think, but uh, when I was single, before I knew Victoria, uh, and I was living as a bachelor, sort of, I had Emily living with me, and my father was living with me. And uh, we were all uh, in this, this dome, because I, I love domes, and I had this dome, uh, and we were living there. And uh, I went off to work one day, because I, I was working. They were not. And uh, before we left, I put on this big pot of chili. And we all had breakfast together, and I put on this chili, because there's only a few things I cook. One of them is chili. And so this big pot of chili, and I said, hey, that'll be ready in about an hour or so. You guys can have lunch, and we'll probably eat it for dinner, because that's what we did. We probably have it for lunch and dinner the next day, too. That's kind of how I cook. And so, uh, but I had to go off to work. I had some meetings to go to. So I left, I came back, and I came back probably at 6.30 or something, kind of tired, walked in the door, and nothing had changed from where I left it, really, uh, because all the dishes that they, we'd all had for breakfast were still on the table, and everything was still there. My father was sitting exactly as he, I left him on the couch watching television. Emily uh, was running around playing with every toy she owned, it seemed, was out and on the floor, because that's how she plays. And so um, I walked in, and they were, it, it was just like this, except now I had chili dishes stacked up on the table and in the sink, and these napkins, which were you know, paper towels, wiped clearly with chili stains on them and left on the table. And I walked in and I was like, man, it, it was a really weird experience because every speech my mother had ever given me flooded back to my head. You know, it's like I had them all down pat. I knew them all. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. You know, hey, it's just me, your slave now. I have to do all this work by myself and I never get any help. I mean, I had them all memorized because I'd heard them so many times. Usually I was on the other side of the speech, though. And I looked at it, and I really wanted to explode because I was just really disappointed that nothing got done while I was gone. And I didn't ask him to, but I just assumed they would see it and do it, kind of <laughs> like what my wife usually does with me today and probably has the same exasperation. But I, I walked into the kitchen, 
uh, somehow kept my mouth shut and I started just cleaning the kitchen up. And then I'm like really steaming in there. I'm trying to pick which speech of my mother's was I going to use. And I just felt very strongly none of them. Instead, I walked out and I said something very similar to this. I said, guys, dad, could you put the TV on mute for a second? And I said, I have something I want to say. Uh, and I said, I, I really thought that you would cleaned up something, anything, <laughs> one thing <laughs> maybe, uh, but you didn't. And I'm a little bit surprised because you guys are better than that. I know you love me. I know you care about me. I know you don't want to just dump it all on me. And I know you can do it. And, and so I know you're better than this. And I need you to be better than this because I'm out working, you know, paying for all this. And it's not, I'm not able to keep doing this. I need, I need you to be better. I know you can be and I need you to be. And I walked back in and started back on the dishes. That's all I said. My father instantly came in and said, no, I, I got that. And he took over. And uh, so I let him because I had other things I had to do. But, you know, for the rest of the time that we were all together, I never had to ask him to do the dishes. Every time we were all done, he just cleaned the kitchen. That was, that was his job. He assigned it to himself. <clears throat> I never told him to do it. He just always did it, which, <clears throat> by the way, means that I, in one speech, accomplished more than my mother did in 25 years. But um, I think there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. I think there's a difference between saying, you can be better, come on. I know you can do better than this. And just saying, you dirty, you know, Laos, you, you've always been bad. You're always going to be bad. You're never going to change. And these are the things that comes to us. The devil will always use circumstances to describe who you are. He'll take your circumstances and say, this is who you are. This will never change. You're always like this. You've never been able to change. You always will be exactly like this. You never will change. And that's it. This is your situation. And you will never, ever change from that. And the, if you ever hear that kind of talk, that's coming from the devil. It's not coming from God because all that talk is condemnation. He loves to use words like always and never, which is absolutely not true, but we buy into it, right? Uh, the God soldier, though, realizes that the word of the Lord is always more than circumstances. In other words, God speaks into our circumstance and changes it. So it doesn't matter what our circumstance is. But here's something I want to say about the, the whole condemnation thing. You have to understand that if you are, find yourself speaking condemnation, Hear me now. You're preaching the devil's sermon for him. And we do this. There's many times the devil hasn't to say a word because we're doing it for him. If we're, if we're speaking to our spouse or we're speaking for our kids or we're speaking at work and we're talking, we're, we hear those words coming out of our mouths, understand it's not coming from God, it's coming from the devil. And we're starting to preach the devil's sermon for him. And we've got to stop it. We've got to stop preaching the devil's sermons because that's not from God. That is just simply trying to discourage people, and that does a very good job of discouraging it, and that's one of the things he wants to accomplish with it. We have to be very, very careful. And we also have to always remember that God's word is what matters, not our circumstance. The very first time we see God in the Bible, he is sitting in the middle of darkness, and he says, let there be light. And instantly, there is light. And the darkness goes away because he spoke light into existence. God speaks truth and it becomes true. All right? He speaks with his word. He creates with his word. And we have to understand that whatever our circumstances want, even if, even if we have a history of failure, it doesn't matter if God told us we are not going to fail this time. We are not going to fail this time. I want to relate one of my favorite little stories in the Bible. Is, and I don't have time to do the whole story. Uh, a guy named Gideon. Some of you guys know about this story, but let me set it up for those of you who don't. So the Israelites, they've been disobedient, and so the God, God allowed the Midianites to come in and conquer them. Now, they're still living in their land. They haven't kicked them out, but the Midianites are like overlords. 
And they're really nasty overlords because they steal their food. They actually let them grow crops. They let them think they're going to have them. And right before, right when it gets ripe, they sneak in, or they don't sneak in, they march in with their, their swords and they just take it away. I don't know if you've ever had a garden, but uh, you know, we have a garden, and it's really nasty if you like, you're like watching maybe a strawberry ripen. Now, this happened to us two years ago. There's this one strawberry, Victoria's all excited. It's almost ripe. I'm going to pick it. And the day she was going to pick it, she goes out and it was gone. Some rabbit came and took it first. You know, that's nasty. It's like I was all ready to take that and eat it, and now I can't because it got stolen. Well, this is what would happen to the Midianites. They'd rush in with swords and armies and say, hey, that's ours, and they would take it. And so what happens is they had to start hiding their food as it was being grown so the Midianites wouldn't see it. Because if they, if they saw it, they'd steal it. So when we meet Gideon, he is in a wine press, which is like, like a little tiny well almost. And they would go in there, usually dump grapes in there, and you stomp them and you turn them into wine. Uh, that's not what it was being used for because the grapes are all since dead by this point. He's hiding in the wine press with wheat, and he's threshing wheat in the wine press so no one can see that he has wheat. He's so afraid of the Midianites, he's like looking around, he's threshing, he's just trying to get enough together to make some bread for the family. That's how Gideon is. Now, I want to show you what happens when the angel of the Lord shows up. And most people believe that when the Bible says the angel of the Lord, and it's a capital A, we see that, um, that's usually actually, people believe Jesus Christ himself showing up. So the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Can you imagine what Gideon feels like at this moment? He's hiding from his shadow, trying to get some things when no one can see him. And the angel shoves says, you mighty man of valor, you brave and courageous man. And he's not being, this isn't him being ironic. He's actually speaking truth over Gideon's life that Gideon doesn't even buy. He's like, I am no mighty warrior. I don't know where you're talking about. But he's miserable and, he, and he's, he's kind of upset because their circumstances are really, really bad and they've been bad for a long time. So Gideon kind of gives it right back. He gets a little bit salty here. He said, oh, uh, he, says, uh, he says, Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if God is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Could you explain that? If God is with me, why is this bad stuff happening to me? Ever feel that way? Where are all his wonderful deeds? We heard about him from our fathers. They used to tell us about him. They'd say, he brought us up out of Egypt. We heard all these great stories. Where are these wonderful deeds of the Lord? We're stuck here. The Midianites have really taken it to us. He has given us over to the Midianites. They're, they're our overlords right now. And so I don't know. You tell me that God's with us. I don't see him. You tell me about his mighty deeds. I don't have them. And we're right now surrounded by Midianites, and there's nothing we can do about them. That's my world. And the angel says, the Lord says this, Go with the might you have and save Israel from the hand of Midian. See, I am sending you. It's like, it's not true. I'm not sending anybody. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you with the might you have. Not I'm going to give you might. The might you have, I'm going to send you to take over and knock the Midianites out. Now, can you imagine poor, poor Gideon? He's like so afraid that he's, he's threshing it with no one looking. And this angel shows up. Well, no, God's going to send you. You're, you're, the, you're the plan, Gideon. You are. You, they're hiding in, in the shadow. You're the plan to go fight the Midianites. So go and do that. And Gideon replies, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I am the last person in my father's house who gets to eat, and we're the last clan. We got no power, no might, nothing. How in the world am I going to do this? Well, here's how. We are who God says we are. Remember, God speaks with his word. And when that angel shows up and says, you're a mighty man of valor, guess what Gideon became at that moment? A mighty man of valor. 
because that's what happens when God speaks. We are who God says we are. And so when God says, this is who, this, you're going to go save him with the might you have. You're not going to need any extra strength. I'm not going to have to build up your muscles. This is going to, not going to bite you with a radioactive spider so you become strong or something. We don't need to do any of that. The might you have is enough. We're going to send you into battle and you are going to deliver Israel because I said so. That's why. God is always greater than the circumstances because he can speak truth into it and change anything. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Gideon. It's kind of interesting, and maybe someday we'll get back to Gideon, but I want to show you right before the famous battle that takes place, because he does listen to the Lord. He does do what God tells him, and actually, God ends up sending just a handful of people with him, and he starts out with several thousand, and God keeps whittling it down, and so the night before, they're, they're camped outside of where the battle's going to take place, and the Midianites not only have themselves, they got, they got two other countries to come with them, so the, the might of the entire region is going to be against Gideon and his, you know, very, very, very small army. And God's coming to him because Gideon, you can tell, is getting a little bit cold feet. Anybody would. He's sitting on the battlefield the night before. He's looking at all the campfires that that's posing them. And the angel of the Lord comes back to him. The Lord comes down and says, um, Gideon, uh, arise and go down against the camp. I've given it to you. They're yours. All you got to do is take them, right? But God knows them. So he says, <clears throat> but in case, you know, you're still afraid to go down, here's what you should do. Grab your servant and sneak down into the camp. And you're going to hear something that is going to strengthen you. That's what he tells them. If you could just get enough courage, you and your, 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 your servant, just walk on down and listen. You're going to hear something that will strengthen you. And so Gideon, being afraid, says, okay, that sounds good. I could use some strengthening. He gets a servant, and they creep down into the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley. They were as numerous as locusts, their camel were without number, as numerous as a sand on the seashore. This is not strengthening Gideon's hand. Right? He's like walking down, oh my, they're more than I thought. They're huge, and they've got people everywhere. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. So what has happened is they've snuck up, and they're listening to two sentries talk. These two guard sentries, they're walking back and forth, and like probably relieving each other from guard duty or something. And so there's one saying to the other, I had this weird dream last night. Now watch the dream. He says, I had a dream like a loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent, and he struck it, so it fell and turned upside down, so the tent lay flat, right? I'm sitting there, I had this dream, this loaf of bread, it's just a loaf of bread, comes rolling down the hill. You know how big a loaf of bread is? It's like that big. And it comes rolling down the hill, but when it hit the tent, the tent went flat, like it was a cannonball shot from a catapult or something, you know? He says, it just knocked it flat. And what a weird dream. Now watch his friend who like has dream interpretation skills on the level of Joseph because he instantly knows what it means. His friend replies, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given all Midian into his hands. So it's like they know his name. This mighty man of valor. He's done nothing, by the way, at this point in his life. This mighty man of valor. This is Gideon. This is who it is. This is like you had a dream that's saying that we're done. He's going to give the entire camp into his hand. They're scared to death of Gideon. Can you imagine what that must have done to Gideon? He said, oh, we do have this. They're already sure of it. And of course, the next day when they attack, they do. Because God speaks truth into existence. Gideon became, became a mighty man of valor the moment that God said, you're a mighty man of valor. And here's the good news. God still speaks into the darkness of our lives and creates light, but only for those who love him. See, a lot of people want that promise, but they don't want to follow up 
with the other part of it, which is this is because we love them. That's where the salvation comes from. Salvation is given to you as a gift, but it's given to you because you love the Lord. In, in, uh, we've used this verse before, but in 2 Chronicles, I love this verse. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? That he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So he's looking for that, right? That's, that's the salvation part of it. He's looking for somebody to fully support. He's looking for somebody who has darkness in their life and he's going to speak into it and create light, but they have to be his. Salvation only works for those who are his. So the helmet of salvation is a great piece of armor, but it only works if you're saved. It only works for salvation. So real quick, this is, a, this is an attack on here, but I felt like I, I didn't want to just stop right there because I want to also kind of warn you that the enemy does attack through condemnation, but he attacks with three major weapons. You need to be on the lookout for these. Whenever you see these or feel these or kind of hear your head talking to you, uh, this is coming from the devil and he's attacking you. Grab your helmet in a hurry and get ready because he'll always, well, not always, but I think you can always break down his attacks in one of three. He uses fear, discouragement, and isolation. And, and you can feel all these at once if you walk into a dark room. I don't know if you've ever been in a room where the lights went out and like it was like downstairs where there was no windows, where everything was fine, all of a sudden lights go out and now you don't know where you are anymore because you can't see anything in front of your face. There's not a single light on. It's really, really terrifying. For a moment, just a moment, it's like, whoa. Or have you ever been in a, uh, a cave? Uh, Rick Saccone was here last night. He was telling me that when he took his advanced scuba diving, this is a perfect example, they, they take him, uh, part of it, like they take you in a lake and they take you down 60 feet deep and they take you down, right? So you're not swimming down, they take you down. And then they let go of you and they, they all leave. He said, it's so dark, you can't see anything. But the difference is, in the water, you're disordered. You don't know which ends up anymore. He says, you have this moment of panic you can't believe. And that's why they do it. They want you to feel that because if something goes wrong, you can find yourself in that situation. And then you have, to, you have training where you have to get your light on is the first thing you do. You have to see which way your bubbles are going. But he said, it is really a weird feeling where uh, you don't know which ends up, but you will suddenly have fear. It's very discouraging because you don't know what to do and you feel totally alone. If you're feeling those things, that's probably a devil attack on you. Because this is how he does it. He wants you to think that, 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 that things bad are going to happen, and there's nothing you can do to stop it, and you are all alone. No one's going to help you. No one cares. No one helps you. You're going to be all alone, and, they, and, and that's it. Whenever you feel these kind of things, you need to get your helmet on fast because you're under attack, and, you, and you've left the helmet off. You need to get it on. So fear, you need to know, never comes from God. God does not drive you with fear. The devil drives you. God leads you. If you're feeling fear driving you to do something, that's not coming from God. Take a deep breath, take a step back, say a prayer, because you're being driven through fear. I have made a lot of decisions through fear in my life. Every one of them have been bad. I've never made a great fear-based decision. We make these decisions. We think we're moving fast, but what we're doing is we're moving through fear. We need to take a step back because the, the infinite God is never out of time. He doesn't need us to react like that, you know. By midnight tonight, you've got to do this. That's not how God works. He plans ahead. He, he's, he's got that. So you need to step back. We've got a couple of scriptures about fear. We talked about this one last week. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So if you're feeling fear grip you, that's not coming from God. In fact, God can't give you fear. And we, we see this from the letter that John wrote, 1 John 4. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. God's perfect love, when he shows up, fear leaves. He couldn't drive you to fear if he wanted to. Fear leaves whenever he shows up. 
So we understand whenever you're feeling fearful about something, that's not coming from God. And if you know somebody who's reacting in fear, and you, sometimes you'll see it. I mean, you'll talk to people, and you'll see it in their eyes. You know they're doing this out of fear. And you start praying for them, and you show them perfect love because they are operating out of fear. And the only thing that's going to stop it is to bring love into it so they can relax and realize that God still has this. So we have to understand where fear is coming from. Uh, the devil will also try to discourage you by telling you this will never get better. This is it. It's the way it always is. It's the way it's always going to be. It's never going to change. This is your life now. You know, we've been dealing with this thing with Victoria, with this poison ivy in the, in the aftermath of this horrible thing she's had going on. Part of the problem was we didn't know when it was going to stop. We still don't really know when it's going to stop. But, you know, but she went through several weeks of it, and, and the symptoms kept changing. It kept getting worse, it seemed, to a point where she went from, you know, having a poison sumac, poison ivy, whatever it was, you know, over 70% of her body, got over that, but now her skin is sensitive to absolutely everything. Harsh sunlight, uh, grass, you know, any kind of pollen in the world, and she starts feeling a burning on her skin. Her skin's hypersensitive right now. And we've been to um, emergency rooms, and we've been to urgent cares, and everybody said, oh, I don't know what that is. And that's not helping. Believe me, that's <laughs> not helping. They did tests. They said, well, you're not dying, so go on home. You know, that's pretty much how that works. And we, we don't know. And she started wondering, is this my life now? And she gets online, you know, because you try to get answers, and that can just drive you into more fear because there's people online talking about their horrible lives. You know, she goes, is this me now? I'm going to have to, you know, wear gloves and masks, and this is my life. And uh, I don't even know what we do about that. We live on a half acre and it's wooded. You know, so I don't even, pollen bothers you, honey. We've got to move to Arizona. I don't even know what we're going to do. You know, we're kind of stuck. We finally found a doctor uh, and we got, it, we got in to see him. And he was, uh, it turns out, we didn't know this, but he's a Christian. And we kind of knew it though because of the way he dealt with this when you know, we walked into the room and you know how they have that like, that bed that's almost on a pedestal, you know, boom, that's where the patient sits, you know, and, the, and everybody sits on the chairs around them, and they're like there, so everybody can study them. And uh, so she's up, you know, in the, in the specimen table there, and, uh, you know, they come and they take her vitals and leave, and the doctor comes in, and he listens to us telling this horrible story and what's been going on for weeks. And he doesn't say much except, like, every now and then, oh, don't you hate it when they send you home? Don't tell you what's going on. That's terrible. You know, he's making notes, but it's all he's saying. And when it's all done, the one thing she said was, I have this weird discoloration on my skin now. And everybody else had totally ignored that. And he gets up and says, let me take a look at that. And so he rolls up her sleeves, and he looks at that. He goes over, he sits back down, and he says, I want you to come off the table and sit here on the chair next to me. So we're going to take her out of the specimen table, right? And you're going to put her on the chair next to her. And whenever she sits down, he turns and he looks her right in the eye, gets in directly in the eyes. He says, I want you to know something. I know what this is. I've seen it before. You're going to get better. And like that, you could feel the room change, right? Because he was speaking the truth, but the truth was setting her free. Because now she realizes this isn't forever. And then he went on to explain it was. And it's funny because while he's explaining it, Victoria just looked around and said, are you a Christian? And he looked there and says, yes, I am. You know, it could, there's, there's something about his you know, demeanor. We just knew that was what it was. And that changes things. Knowing that this isn't the rest of her life, he says it'll probably be about three more weeks. And we're about a week and a half into that. But about three more weeks. And so knowing that there's an end in sight, he even said, you could probably go back to living your life because the pain you'll be able to endure knowing it's not forever. See, that's the thing. The devil wants you to think it's forever. This is how he could discourage you. This is it. It's never going to change. It's only going to get worse. There's no hope for you in the future. But there's always for hope when you have a God who can create miracles. There's always hope. And the hope that we have greatest 
is that even if everything on earth goes bad, we still have hope with him in heaven. So we're always going to make it out of this. We're always going to be better off when God's all finished. So we have to understand that. And I love the, uh, this passage here in 2 Corinthians. Of Paul's talking about his situation. Because sometimes you think these guys just kind of went from, you know, from mountaintop to mountaintop and kind of went through their problems like, ha, ha, ha. And, but, and, and here he gets really real. He's talking about the situation they're in. And like, boy, I, I think like he lives my life, you know, except for his life was much worse. But you know how you kind of get caught up in your own world. We are hard pressed, he says, on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. I love this because I am perplexed all the time, you know? And, and I memorize the verse because cause when I start, I'm, like, I'm puzzled or perplexed or, you know, I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I'm not going to despair. I know I don't understand, but I'm not going to despair. I'm hard-pressed on every side, but you know what? I'm not crushed yet. I'm still breathing. Uh, I've, I am persecuted. A lot of people are against me, but I'm not abandoned. I'm not abandoned. For one thing, I've got God with me, so I know I'm not abandoned, but I have more than just that. I mean, I have other people too. One thing that's been great through all this situation we've gone through is all the people in the church who've come to us, you know, come around us and things. This is part of the reason we have a church community so that we don't have to, you know, we get to bear up each other's burdens and, and we get to help each other. And that's part of what it is. We're never abandoned. You're never alone. The devil wants you to think you're alone because then it's easy to pick you off. If you get the sheep alone, it's easy for the wolf to get them. You know, the sheep doesn't get got the one near the shepherd. And so he wants, to, he wants to separate you. He wants to pull you away, but we're not. It is written, and therefore I, have, I believe, and therefore I've spoken. I love this verse. This is just such a great verse. But we have this promise from the Lord that he is going to be with us. He doesn't promise you you're not going to have hard times. In fact, Jesus says you will have hard times. He like guarantees you you're going to have tribulations. But there's a scripture in uh, 2 Corinthians. What, I'm, going to, I'm going to move to the next scripture here, which is this one. Look, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, he says. The rivers will never overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not sear you. Which means you'll feel the heat, but it's not going to leave a scar. He, he says, I'm going to be with you through it all. Don't be discouraged here. I'm never, ever, ever going to leave you. There's a, there's a proverb that I'm going to give you the, the Living Bible version of it, because this is the first time I ever read it was when I was a kid. I always loved this verse. I like the way the Living Bible puts it. The path of the guy that leads to life. So why fear death? When you realize the worst thing that can happen to you on earth is death, and it doesn't matter to you, it kind of frees you from a lot of stuff. He will always try to convince you that no one else cares. The devil will always try to convince you that no one else cares. He wants you alone. He wants you abandoned. He wants you discouraged. But you know that God still cares for you. We absolutely know that. Make sure your character is free from the love of money, the writer's Hebrew says, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now it's interesting they tie that in with the other. See, if you're focused on things like how much money you have in a bank, you'll miss the part that God's with you forever. And if you focus on what your situation is in your house or your job or whatever, you're missing the fact that God says, I'll never forsake you. He's saying, I am always there. I will never, ever forsake you. So what we need to understand is the devil will attack you. 
And he'll attack you, try and condemn you, try to make things sound worse than they are. He'll try to separate you. He'll drive you with fear. He'll discourage you. And he'll try to tell you you're all alone. But the mind of Christ says, I'm not alone. God is with me. And God is greater than all of this. And no matter what happens, I'm going to be with him in glory. So take your best shot. And when you get that helmet on, when you have God's helmet on, you'll hear these little tiny pings. And that's it. The devil won't be landing the blows. I mean, I'll tell you what, though. If you give in to the fear, it's hard to get out. Once the devil gets his hooks in you, it gets hard. He will pull you down fast. As soon as you feel anything attacking, you need to go to the scriptures. And you say, wait a minute. This can't be true. Because God still loves me. He's still with me. And he's still in charge. So whatever else is happening right now, this much I know. I'm going to hold on to that. But we need to get to the point where we're willing to say this. This is Psalm 26. Examine me, Lord, and try me or test me. Test my mind and my heart. That's a scary prayer, by the way, because tests are not fun. But the purpose of them is to show you the areas of your life that you've left God and, you, and you're leaving an opening for the enemy. We need to close those off so when the helmet goes on, it's quiet. And all we can hear is the commands for the Lord telling us how to march forward. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you...